I think the ability to pick up the skills and learn it on the fly allows for a much easier way to enter the workforce for a lot of these security roles, as opposed to we're trying to hire this person with 20 years experience on a 10 year technology. And I think that's pretty exciting is that the rate of change is allowing for a greater swath of security professionals to just jump in if they're hungry. You're listening to Cloud Security Reinvented, a podcast for security leaders with a focus on the cloud. Learn best practices from fellow security professionals and how they disconnect from it all at the end of the day. Cloud Security Reinvented. Good morning, or depending on when you are in the world, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Welcome to Cloud Security Reinvented. I'm your host, Andy Ellis. Before I introduce our guest for the week, a quick word from our sponsor, Orca Security. Orca provides agentless security and compliance for your public cloud infrastructure, enabling you to detect and prioritize security risks in minutes, not months. Thank you, Orca. I'm here with Ty Spano, the Chief Security and Trust Officer of SciSense. Welcome, Ty. Thanks for having me, Andy. Yeah, I'm really glad you're here and thanks for joining us today. Across someone's career, not only do we as professionals grow, or at least we hope we grow, but the world that we're in has changed and grown. And so today I'd like to get some insight from you, especially in light of that transition that we've all experienced from the on-premise world to the cloud model that has become the default way of building IT infrastructure. But before we get into that, could you share with the audience a little bit about your career journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I'm one of those rare breeds right now that has started in security from an educational path and has led their career all the way up until this point, knowing that I wanted to be a CISO one day. And now that I am a chief security and trust officer, sometimes I question it. It is tough, but now I'm also thinking like, how many times do you be a CISO? So let me just roll back. I graduated from Penn State University with a degree in information science and technology. And that allowed me to jump directly into consulting at a small company called Pertivity. And I did that for a couple of years, discovered AppSec was kind of my thing, and went over to JP Morgan Chase. There I booted up one of the early static analysis programs. And for some reason, they trusted a 26-year-old uh, security kid at the time. And they let me scan and test all the corporate and internet-facing web properties and support a lot of the organization of how we embedded security touch points. From there, I jumped over to Capital One Financial and I really grew up as a human, as a person, as a leader through their culture and programming. And I think a lot of the leadership training that I received there allowed me to become the leader I am. And a big part of that were the people, not just the programs, but my mentors, my direct leaders, the CISOs that we had. I really grew into this idea that I wanted to become a CISO. But also, I saw a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and it looked like so much more fun than some of the fun we had with the FFIEC, the OCC, all these regulators coming and going, and just to be a part of a smaller startup. So I started to retract my brain, figured be a CISO of a small to medium company, see how I would do that at a startup, and I started navigating my career down. So I went to Target as an IC, an individual contributor. That only lasted about 90 days. I was then gifted with creating a new program. I called it Product Security. I had a team of 37 to grow it to 45 by the the end of my tenure. I stayed there for exactly a year because it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Uh, it was yep. kind of the opposite, right? Uh, so I did that for a year, very transformative, very fun. But then I took a step down to a smaller company once again called Lending Club. Smaller team, did uh, security engineering there for about 15 months, and then 
got the right call at the right time from the startup called Periscope Data, data science, data analytics company. And I made the jump as head of security. So I went from application and product security finally to a startup. That journey took me a little bit to get to that point of the career I wanted. And mm -hmm. I'm really glad that I did because about a year into that journey, we were acquired by this company, SciSense. And now I am a global CISO. I'm a chief security and trust officer, and I help protect about 800 humans. And we provide data analytics services, software to organizations to really power their orgs. So it's been quite the journey to get here. That's an amazing journey. And I think the part that I really love about it is I was going to make the joke early on, who hurt you that you wanted to be a CISO your whole career? But you had this vision of where you wanted to be, but it's not like you had the path that said, oh, here's exactly the route I'm going to take and just followed it. You, you've adapted and changed as you've gone along. Yeah. And I definitely received critical feedback. When I was at Capital One, I tried to make the jump from director of application security, director of red teaming, guy that built college new hire pipelines, helped build out a lot of process and control going from a top 10 to a top five bank. And they love the title, they love the logo. But then mm -hmm. when I would talk to them, they're like, yeah, all this process stuff you're talking about and all these competencies, like, yeah, it's a bit much for us. We're scrappy. We need to yep. be well-rounded. We got to do all this stuff. I'm like, I can do all that. But there was no belief in that. So from that, I took that inspiration and that feedback to say, okay, I got to get my hands dirty, become more of an IC and understand how to just help more of the business. And I'll be honest, I think I was ready then, but making those two other jumps to work on smaller functions and then mm -hmm. a smaller organization altogether in the Bay Area. And I think the geolocation really helped. Once I was in the Bay Area, the gravitas with some of the people I've worked with since then, it's a very small community of people that know who they like to work with, how they like to work. And if you're good at what you do, you will get a lot of calls based on that. That's great to hear. Let's talk a little bit about cloud specifically and sort of how that has changed. So when you think about that career arc, how has your world of thinking about security and looking at security changed as cloud has become more prevalent? Your career is a big part of my career as well. Like when you look at web app firewalls and a lot of the capabilities that were out there, I reflect on hosting models. I reflect on how do we push software out into the world. Yep. That has absolutely changed. All this on-prem capability with how we manage source control to now everything being SaaS native and now like how students learn in college and how they're able to transform and adapt into actual startups or real world organizations, it's pretty similar. And I'd say before 2010, 2012, it wasn't that similar. It was a lot different where you were using open source, freeware, and then you're jumping into companies and adapting to very heavy tools. Now we're seeing a lot of the GitHubs, we're seeing mm -hmm. a lot of the concourse CIs, we're seeing better positioning because people are taking those lessons learned and the scrappiness of being in college and applying it to startups and it's working out. So I think when we look at how software has changed, you know, I, I think I'm really lucky. I've been through two massive transformations with Capital One and Target. Uh, yep. Capital One, I got so much training from the Amazon team that it allowed me to really understand the tech stack, how to architect, how to build, how to use some of the native tools, but not too many. And the reason I mentioned WAF, that AWS WAF was not friendly in the beginning and it's still not super friendly, but it's very expensive. But so were Impervis, so were F5 ASMs, so yep. were like all this other hardware that app and network couldn't exactly play with each other. So that whole aspect of software defined networks and some of the early conversations of the evolution of applications 
that to me has been the big change as we move more and more towards cloud because I find it less and less that you're talking about the OSI model and more you're just talking natively in AWS language and mm-hmm. engineers, leaders, managers, uh, they don't even know what the OSI model is anymore. I'm not sure anybody knew what the OSI model was because it sort of got tacked on after we built TCP IP. So it's always an entertaining one. Yeah, but you have your CISSP and please do not throw sausage pizza away is a very important thing for all of us. It absolutely is not. So uh, (laughs) let's talk about your industry a little bit. And I'm going to, so first of all, can you explain your industry to people who are like, what is the data analytics industry like? And then once you've given that little color, how is the cloud and cloud security different there? than what people from the outside might expect? Yeah, so I think that's a really great question. And uh, what's cool for me as an application security person, I've been part of generating so much data throughout my entire career that it started with Excel spreadsheets and putting them into PowerPoints. Then it went from Excel to Tableau. And then again, the transformative years of Capital One, I built this thing with a very smart set of folks. Uh, We actually built an analytics platform there that allowed us to power and ingest all this information into a data lake. And most people in the security teams know it's a data swamp, not a lake. We have all this information. How do we get intelligence and insight out of it? So what we did was we created uh, a goal question metric approach to it. And so from that, we had a large swath of data. We were trying to answer high level executive questions. We were answering medium level questions at the director level. And then we're answering low level questions at an engineer level. Mm -hmm. What do I have to patch? How good is my team patching? How is the fleet across the organization, right? Top to bottom, bottom to top, we're starting to think of how we look at data because security at scale is very tough. Security at like where I'm at now, it's a little different. But when you think about the data patterns and how you analyze it, it's very difficult. And then one CVE is not the same across the board. And then Andy, I scanned you with Nessus and then I scanned you with uh, an OWASP Zap proxy and you get similar findings. Now you're double counting. Now, how do you rationalize those findings? And there's startups in that space that address that specifically. So all that information, my company does this great thing with taking those large data sets, allowing you to type out what are those questions you're trying to answer mm-hmm. and to get the analytics and dashboards. That way your executive team has to hammer you less and you're always on the heels of saying, well, I, I got to go look at the data again because like, I don't know how we're doing today because we have more CVEs than ever. We got O-Days coming out versus, yeah, I'm pretty confident we're staying in our SLAs. Our escape yeah. rate's not terrible. Like some volumes get out to, to prod, but if we're deploying twice a day, I'm less concerned versus we have to deploy on-prem software when the customer updates it. And that's a tougher conversation than I have today. So from a data analytics standpoint, we power a lot of the backbone and we also do white label OEM. So when you go to a website, sometimes SciSense is actually the technology behind that. You wouldn't know unless you actually started looking at the packets to see yeah. that it is SciSense technology. But at the same time, you don't need to know. What you need to know is companies are using the power of data and data is more expensive and valuable than oil today. And last year of any year, We have generated more data than ever before. And now we have to analyze that to say, we as a human race, we as a community, how do we work? How do we operate? And the insights we can get from it, as far as how information goes through our entire country, how people consume data, how they interact with it, all of these things become very interesting into how are we going to action something different now? 
That is fascinating. And I agree with you on the, like the, your CVs show up like a bazillion times. <laughs> I did talk to somebody the other day who said, well, the mark of a good program is that your total number of findings goes down over time. And I'm like, I have never seen a program that like that. Like you want them to go up because you're like building more systems. So of course you have more findings. I've had that conversation many times over. I'm a firm believer. It's like, how much coverage do you actually have of your attack surface? Not right. so much, how many findings do you have? Because right. we can make up so much fake data if that's what it is to get our bonus checks, but why are we playing a game? And why aren't we just trying to protect the company? And that's the part that gets in the way sometimes. I like your coverage, SLA, and escape are sort of three three good metrics there. Yep. But speaking of like metrics and practices, you know, if you look back to the before cloud environments, what practices did you learn there that you'd think most resonate today that you draw on and are still relevant? Um, I think it's a lot easier now, but the hygiene of having the fundamental application inventory, what is it that your company does? What is the product? And then how, as you a security practitioner, do you apply these principles to making sure that it is actually secure? Because Sometimes we get into these shops, I don't know, Andy, if you've ever walked into one and they're like, we got all these great bells and whistles and they just start naming all these labels of security tools. Yep. And then you're like, all right, which ones are like customized and actually doing well? They're like, yeah, how many of those are shelfware? I, I really don't know that answer. I just know we bought them all. Did you yeah. deploy them? I don't know. We bought a WAF and it's just in listening mode and we haven't actually put it in active block. And you're like, good spend of money. It's for me the fundamental aspect of knowing that you are trying to protect something because you have the basis of what it is that you're trying to protect. You know, what's fascinating is you said it's easier today. And I think a lot of people would find that counterintuitive because the early cloud era, it felt harder to know what was in your inventory. But no, I think you're right that it's become easier. There's better tooling to find like, hey, where are all of my systems in AWS? Yep. Versus like, what's all in my data center? I remember having to walk around with a clipboard. It's like, what's the asset inventory tag on this? Check on my spreadsheet to see if we know what IP address it is. Sometimes you just be like, let's unplug a cable and see who screams. Cause I don't know what this machine's doing. Yeah, what if the whole company screams and all your shareholders? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's possible I've done that once or twice. <laughs> So let's look on the flip side, what practice, and maybe that's the best, but uh, what practice should we have gotten rid of in the security world a long time ago? Ooh, uh, this one's coming up for me right now. And, and I think it's risk management practices. I, I like the idea of what we do with risk management, but within application security, the idea of accepting a risk, let it be a business <laughs> decision or, hey, we're not fixing it because it's too much money or it's end of life. And, you know, Andy, Andy, listen to me. Yeah. We're end of lifing this in six months. Trust oh me. My God. <laughs> six you years later, you left the company and they're still yeah. using the software. You know, you know what my answer was when somebody said, we're end of lifing this in end months? I said, show me the committed plan where that has gone through change management. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? I said, I know what it takes to end of life a system. You don't just get to declare your end of life. Yet. Like, what's your communication strategy with customers? Oh, we haven't started that yet. I'm like, well, I know that it's 12 months from the day you first communicate to a customer to end of life something. So it's not six months from today. So why do we lie to ourselves by accepting yeah. these risks and making these statements? And again, I understand our motivation is typically around our compensation and yeah. management of that visibility and that brand within the organization. So for me, this idea that we accept a risk, I've moved that language to acknowledge. And yeah. I started this in a few shops past. And, and for me, it makes a lot of sense. But it's also the difference between static analysis, coding flaws versus pen test 
findings, something that can be actively exploited compared to like all this crazy component analysis that's happening now. And it's great, but you know, if you can't actually exploit it, why do we care? Right. And I think as we rationalize our issues, we should have honest conversations. If we're not going to fix it, the risk doesn't go away. You don't close the ticket, right? Yeah. You should recognize it. Maybe it moves to a risk register, but we also lose the insight by accepting these tickets sometimes in JIRA, and then we forget about it, and then we repeat that cycle over and over because you get new people in support, you get new engineers, you get all this stuff, and then you have a CISO and an AppSec team going like, didn't we see this already? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, memory is hard, institutional memory. I'm a firm believer that security can't accept risks at all. Only the business can Hang on, I've accepted a risk, and I'm gonna tell you one, and it's very real. Yeah. MacBooks don't have cable lock ports, so how do you get a cable lock on a MacBook unless you super glue one of those weird attachments to it? Right, but no, but that's an <laughs> IT risk. Like, that's the CIO says, oh, we're doing MacBooks. You're like, great, just so you know, there's, you can't lock them down, people can steal them. I used to run like, IT. Okay. <laughs> right, so IT can, accept, can say, yeah, yeah, we're doing that. Like, we acknowledge that that For is sure. a risk that someone might walk off with our MacBooks. You know, I remember when they stopped doing those and I was like, actually, you could just rip the things out anyway. So I don't know if they provided us a lot. My, my favorite on-site pen test where I did a red team of an insurance company in Pennsylvania. I walked in and I still have this visible memory. I yep. walked in after hours. I showed the security guard a fake badge. kind of let me just through <laughs> because I'm like, ah, it's not working. He's like, oh, yeah, that looks like it should work. Just go ahead. I walked right in, went upstairs. I started stealing laptops left and right. I think I got 20 laptops that day. My favorite one, the people that kind of put the cable lock near the laptop. Yep. But don't actually like turn the locking mechanism. Right. Enough that internal security would like walk past because they thought it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I once had a, a director of physical security who showed up in his first week said, oh, I'm just going to claim all the ones that nobody has locked. And so he did that, didn't tell anybody. And so people came in the next day and were freaking out. And he's like, well, serves them right. And I'm like, you're not going to last long here with that attitude. Like, <laughs> you just shut down a bunch of engineers for a day. Yep. And like, they called me and I didn't know he'd done it. I'm like, oh, so finally, like I got through to him and I said, hey, we got to file a police report. Somebody broke into the building last night. He's like, no, that was me. He's like, no, nah, I didn't break in. I just I yeah, badged I didn't in. Break in. I just had badged <laughs> in. I badged in. <laughs> I, you know, the, the stories we could probably tell would could fill a few hours. But if you thought about like, what's the biggest surprise or maybe an opportunity that's still out there that you know, will surprise people in the future about cloud and cloud technologies as people have moved to them? Like, what do you think people didn't foresee or maybe you didn't even foresee, but you're really excited by? The speed of change, the speed of influence of backlog, the speed of features that come out that help us solve real problems. You know, I've met a lot of the AWS crew throughout the years, and they're mm -hmm. very intelligent folks and that team that they do what we do in other companies. And they decided to join forces there. And now they're solving those issues natively. Yep. And that allows the teams that are on AWS to be empowered. The tough part, man, the change curve, Andy, yeah. it's a lot. But we're learning by doing immediately. We're not learning by reading documentation, going to a boot camp every time there's a major rev. We got to do a 40-hour training that we have to go and get an invoice for. Like, mm -hmm. I think the ability to pick up the skills and learn it on the fly allows for a much easier way to enter the workforce for a lot of these security roles as opposed to we're trying to hire this person with 20 years experience on a 10-year technology. You know, right. and, and I think that's pretty exciting is that the rate of change is aligned for a greater swath of security professionals to just jump in if they're hungry. Yep. 
So speaking of those early security professionals who need to be hungry, if there's a piece of advice you wish somebody had given you early in your career that maybe might help one of them, you know, maybe not like, hey, don't be a CISO, but like, what is that piece of advice? What would you wish you'd been told, you know, earlier on? Yeah. And I think this for me in the past few years, luckily I have some folks that I've been mentoring for some time and some that I mentored from engineer to security practitioner on my team right now, like Aaron Brown, cloud security engineer on his way to keep moving up. And we had met at Lending Club. And one of the things I mentioned to him was before you commit and jump from engineer to security, please make sure you're ready for the stress. You're ready for the visibility into things that you don't get to talk about with anyone. Be prepared for some very challenging situations that you're concerned why you did this to yourself. And it's not always we get the opportunity to go down these paths because it's, it's just great and happy all the time. But if you're in the forensics or if you're in incident response, mm -hmm. you're going to see the dark side of the world a little bit and the dark side of the Internet. And unfortunately, the dark side of people. Yes. And, you know, as someone in my team now, like I only do the HR investigations for our internal employees. And I don't love the idea. I need to scale it better. But I also want my team to grow first, understand all the fundamentals, be ready for where we're going, and then allow them to get insight into some of the not so great things. Because I think it does come with a level of stress that I wasn't fully aware of. And I think the world has changed quite a lot and how people use their work assets and don't always realize some of the bad that they do can really have impact to the rest of the work. That's a really good one. Yeah, the one piece of advice that I give out to people on that one is anytime you're doing an investigation of a peer employee, let the lawyers actually do the grunt work. Like you set the stage and say, here's what I'm looking for. Here's the device. Like you go read their email. I don't want to read it because I carried information about my colleagues for 20 years that I wish I'd never known. I think that's a great approach. Now, if you're at a startup, you don't always get the option. And I think that's the challenge. But I, I think if you do have the ability to source that, yes, you're going to form opinions about people. And unfortunately, if they stay employed there after a case is thrown out or it pens, like whatever it is. Or it was, you found out a thing that was tangential to the case. Like this wasn't what you were investigating, <sighs> but you know, you, you found that email about two people who were you know, engaging in recreational activities that you didn't need to know about. I know a lot of those, unfortunately, but yeah. yes, I, I know the feeling. And I think that to me is great advice, Andy. And I think as you share that with folks, it's a part of which vertical you're going into within security. And then you'll yeah. understand like if it is for you or not. But in reality, everyone within the security team will have some sort of IR experience, uh, regardless yep. of which vertical you're in. That's really great. So thanks for pointing that out for folks. So now for just a bit of free form, you know, give some advice, wisdom you'd want to share. It doesn't have to be about technology, but what's one thing that you wish that sort of you know, more people knew? You know, I think I, I wish people would have a chance to meet folks like yourself, to find the strong mentors that can really cut through a lot of the BS that's out there. There's a lot of information, and I think that's the opportunity we face now. There's so much information. There are so many false prophets. There are so many people out there that will be willing to tell you how to hack systems, be willing to tell you how to do things, be willing to share all this great videos of stuff that can work or not work. I think it's it's nice. It's nice that there's access and you have to use less underground bulletin boards to get this information, less magazines that you have to physically yep. read. But I think the challenge is you have to find the right guides. And these mentors are the ones that are going to really assist you with tracking your career and introducing you to your next set of mentors. So sometimes you have spot mentors. I hope folks find long-term mentors like yourself that really allow for that character development 
and also the career development to know your path because not everyone's path is the same. And sometimes there are serial CISOs that, you know, can do a CISO gig, you know, once every two years because they get fired yep. so often and they just know how to deal with that stress because that's stressful knowing that, that your lifeline is short. Uh, and there's some of us like I'm on three and a half years now and I feel blessed, but it's been a tough three and a half years <laughs> acquisition, pandemic, uh, cultural change, like just a bunch of stuff. But, you know, I've surpassed that and I'm trying to extend that mean number of 17 months for most CISOs, because I think in my head that that is a goal I've set out for myself is that I can do a multi-year program and prepare it for a good transition at the right time. Yeah. And. You know, I think the mentoring has helped me kind of develop these milestones in my head of where I'm going and how I'm going to get there. So I think as you're going through this journey, you're not alone and you can find the right people that are willing to help, but make sure you find the right people for you. Let it be short or long-term. Yeah. Well, well, Ty, thank you for putting me on that list. I'm really, really honored there. And you know, I'll let people come talk to you too, because I think you've <laughs> probably got some great mentoring wisdom to share. Thank you for joining us today. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me on, Andy. And for our listeners, you know, thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you next week. You can always find us on your favorite podcasting platform. I'm Andy Ellis for Cloud Security Reinvented. Thank you for checking out this episode of Cloud Security Reinvented. Brought to you by Orca Security. Orca Security detects and prioritizes cloud security risks for AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud without the gaps in coverage, alert fatigue, and operational costs of agents. Please follow Cloud Security Reinvented wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or visit orca.security slash podcast to get immediate access to all of the latest episodes.